Thank you all very much. 1 Corinthians 14. 1 Corinthians 14. While you're turning there, uh, I appreciate what Brother Ingram said, what your pastor said. And leading up to this, uh, God has blessed our, our church in Stillwater and the area of missions, and I'm very thankful uh, for that. But I realized a long time ago it wasn't just a heart for missions, it's a heart for a church being a church, which makes missions natural in many ways in that case. And, and so there, there, are, there are things that, that grow out of a, a church that, that don't have to be hammered as much if some of the foundational parts of a church are there. And, and so um, it's probably just another way of, of saying what he uh, already said. And, and so I want to deal with some of that tonight. There's only one message that I preach at our church every year. And, and it'll be a, a, a part of that message that I, I preach tonight that I'm convinced is instrumental in establishing, being sure that a, a foundation of a church is there. This is not the only part of the foundation. It's just a part that if this gets messed up, it messes up a lot of other pieces. So my point is not that it's even the most important but it is vitally, it is vitally important in, in this particular instance. And then this chapter, as you're going to see, is about the only place in Scripture in which a church service is dealt with in as much detail as this is. And what's interesting about that is a church is a whole lot more than a church service, but really in many ways a church service is the hub of your expression, and it reveals a lot about a church. It's where your giving is done, it's where the preaching takes place, it's where so much expression of ministry happens. And so what is talked about in a church service in 1 Corinthians 14 uh, has a lot to do with the foundation of a church. So let's stand together as we read uh, three verses, and then we're going to understand the context of this whole chapter, and then don't get nervous, but then that will lead to just really an understanding of a good part of the whole book of 1 Corinthians that I hope will put some things into place for you. Verse 23, 1 Corinthians 14, verse 23. If therefore the whole church be come together into one place, and all speak with tongues, and there come in those that are unlearned or unbelievers, will they not say that ye are mad? But if all prophesy, and there come in one that believeth not, or one unlearned, he is convinced of all. He is judged of all, and thus are the secrets of his heart made manifest. And so falling down on his face, he will worship God and report that God is in you of a truth. There's nothing greater that could be said about Canaan Baptist Church from a guest that they leave and, and report to everybody else God was there. Amen. And who's most responsible for that is what we're going to talk about tonight. Let's pray. Father, I do ask that you would accomplish what needs to be done, what you want done in the area of missions in this church, largely through the focus this week, both on dealing with missions specifically, as we have talked about the last couple nights, 
but then in dealing with some other parts of the truth or the mindset that helps accomplish that. So help me to be clear this evening, and I, I know I'm just a preacher here. I am not the pastor, and so help me not to say anything that would try to put myself in that place. That position is already filled very well by Brother Ingram. I pray that just as one who loves this church and desires your best for them, and that their greatest days would be yet ahead, then I pray that you would help me to convey this with a, a passion and a fairness that you would be pleased with by the time the service is done. Lord, I take my responsibility seriously to represent your word accurately and fairly and passionately. But as much as it was meant to be preached, even more it was meant to be responded to. And so I pray that the people sitting in these pews would take their responsibility as seriously as they expect me to take mine. And that together, by the end of the night, each of us will have done what you desired us to do. I pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. I want you to notice the way these verses are broken up. They're broken up into two church services. I have titled this at times the tale of two church services. Church service number one is in verse 23. Notice this, if therefore the whole church be come together into one place, and I'm not going to go off on a rabbit trail about, about local church theology. The very term local church is redundant because church is local the word means local. We're just clarifying it because so many people believe that the church is something more universal. But this clarifies the whole church come together into one place. And so that means that a church has to be local in, in its expression. But when it says, if therefore the whole church be come together into one place, when that happens, we're talking a church service. All right, so that kind of clarifies that. That's the reason I call this the tale of two church services because it is referring to a time like tonight when the church comes together into one place. And then I want you to, to notice, um, that we're not going to miss the next part, but we're going to skip it for a moment just so that we can lay it out. And it says, and there come in those that are unlearned or unbelievers. So an unbeliever would be one who was lost, one that is unlearned, could be a, a yet another way for saying lost, or it could be for one who is not discipled. Because it says unbeliever, it seems to imply that maybe unlearned would be one that maybe had come to Christ but had not been discipled yet. Either way, it's referencing that if the church has come together and there comes in somebody else that is an unbeliever or unlearned, it's referring to them as a guest that comes from the outside. So the church has come together and a guest comes in the doors to that church service. And in church service number one or church service A, it says the result potentially at the end of verse 23 is, will they not say that ye are mad? Now, it doesn't mean angry. 
as in mad. It doesn't mean that they came and everybody was upset. Usually that's just what a, an independent Baptist preacher is accused of. He was mad. He preached like he was mad or angry. It's not what it means. It means mad in like more almost like crazy. That, well, we, we can't understand that. This does not make sense. He's speaking nonsense or what we're hearing is, is nonsense. We can't, we can't comprehend what is taking place. All right. And then, and then notice verse 24. It says, but if all prophesy, and, and again, that's a, that's a vitally important part, but we have to set it aside for the contrast, and then that's going to be part of the clincher here in a minute. So, it, so verse 24 starts, but if also it's giving us a different service, and there come in one that believeth not, or one unlearned. So it's talking about the guest again. It's still referring to the whole church coming together. And, and so you have the church come together again. You have guests coming again. But notice the result this time in verse 24. Instead of saying, ye are mad, you're crazy. I, I did not get this. Instead, it says of this guest, he is convinced of all. He is judged of all. And thus are the secrets of his heart made manifest. This guest comes in. And their response is such that things that they did not understand about themselves, now they're starting to get a clue. Here's my problem. The secrets of my heart, I didn't even understand it before, but, but now this is kind of coming to light. Now I can, I can understand this a little bit more and notice this. And so falling down on his face, he will worship God. That's interesting because a lot of members have never done that. But the guest, the guest can. That the guest comes in and, and goes through this service. And the result is, for one, notice that it does link worshiping God and falling down on his face. So that is also redundant because the word worship actually literally means that. To prostrate oneself on, on the ground. And, and so again, it's being redundant, falling down on his face, he will worship God, meaning God is becoming real. But, but here's what's, what's really interesting and report, meaning that he goes out and tells other people about what he experienced at that church service. And what he reports is, boy, God is in you. God was there. He may not leave and say that was, the most, that was the most modern, contemporary, highest quality song service I've ever been through. He may not say that was the fanciest building. He may not say that that was the greatest oratorical um, skill I've ever seen demonstrated. He may not say they had the, they had the nicest children's area. They may not say that, boy, they had the, a, a youth program that just gave everything on, on the planet for our youth to do. He may not say any of those things, but he might just leave and say, God was there. Amen. And that's what you once said. Now, I don't think that I ask, have to ask Canaan Baptist Church for a vote. Which church service do you want? I'm pretty sure I don't have to do that, right? It should be obvious. I'm trusting 
that you would say, you know, if we can have a church service, we would prefer to have church service number two as opposed to church service number one. So what's the difference? Well, you may think that the difference is irrelevant today, but it is relevant once you understand what Paul is conveying. Because the only difference in the way that these church services are conducted is in verse 23, they all spake with tongues. And in verse 24, they all prophesied, meaning those that participating in the, in the service, they either spake in tongues or they prophesied. And, and that's the difference. So when they were speaking in tongues and a guest came in, the, the guest would leave and say, man, these people, are, these people are crazy. I did not understand what took place. It does not make sense to me. Verse 24, though, in church service number two, if they were prophesying, then they have the opportunity for this convincing to take place, for this being judged of all, and then for them to fall on their face and report, man, the worship God and report that God is there of a truth. And, and that's the difference, is speaking in tongues versus prophesying. Now, I want you to, I want you to notice the difference in those two, and, and let me just kind of issue a little bit of a disclaimer here for a moment. I'm not going to spend time talking about tongues and, and being a gift for that particular day and time. And, and we, I think we, we would all be in agreement. I mean, I haven't watched live stream in a while, but I, I think we're in agreement that tongues is a gift of the past. Maybe, you know, maybe you still practice it here in Georgia. I don't know. If so, it's probably just an accent, you know, instead, as far as we Oklahomans are concerned. And, and, and so, you know, tongues was, a, was valid then. All right, we need to understand it. It was a valid gift that God used at that time. We consider that to be a gift that is past. Now, so I'm not going to spend time giving disclaimers about all of that. But the, the idea here, the difference is contained in the rest of the chapter and why this matters. Because tongues versus prophesying was simply the, the evidence of a problem they had back then. The tongues and prophesying wasn't the direct issue. It was deeper that Paul is uncovering. He's just saying at the church at Corinth, at that particular point in time, it was evidenced most in this aspect of tongues. And so he, he gives a, a clarification for that. And so let, let me explain what, what that is. So let's go back to verse 1. And let's understand what is being said. Again, I'm not going to deal with the tongues aspect as far as the, the specifics of tongues, but we're going to deal with the part that Paul was dealing with. So verse 1, follow after charity and desire spiritual gifts, but rather that you may prophesy. And, and so when he says for in the next verse, he's clarifying what he means. So he says something about tongues in verse 2. For he that speaketh in an unknown tongue speaketh not unto men, but unto God. For no man understandeth him, albeit in the Spirit he speaketh mysteries. In verse 3, he says something about prophesying. But he that prophesieth speaketh unto men, and, and here is the, here's the result. They can be edified, they can be exhorted, and they can be comforted. 
because they understood it. In, in verse 2, they didn't understand what they were, nobody could understand what was being said. In verse 3, it says, but in prophesying, then there, there's benefits. So verse 4 really gets to the crux of the rest of the chapter. He says, he that speaketh in an unknown tongue edifieth who? Himself. He that prophesieth edifieth whom? The church. That's the point of the chapter is who is being edified and who somebody is concerned about who is being edified. So the uh, tongues means that a, a person is, is expressing ministry themselves, their gift to God, they're expressing it and their primary concern isn't anybody else. Their primary concern is themselves because they are the ones speaking in tongues and they're expressing their gift. And so Paul said, listen, when you're speaking in tongues, you are edifying one person, that's you. But when you are prophesying, you are actually edifying the whole church. And Paul was passionate about the, the difference because he wanted people to be edified. So chapter 14 is not about tongues, it's about edifying and the threats to edifying. Edifying meaning when somebody is helped, when somebody is furthered, when they are lifted up above what they knew or understood before. So Paul's passion is that they are edified, but tongues was, was interfering with edification taking place in Corinth. Notice what he says in verse 5 because he explains how passionate he is about this. He says, I would that you all spake with tongues, but then he clarifies, but rather that you prophesied. Notice this next statement. For greater is he that prophesieth than he that speaketh with tongues, except he interpret, meaning all right, the person who is prophesying is greater. He says, now if somebody is speaking in tongues, but there's an interpretation he says that that is, would be acceptable because here's, here's the point, that the church may receive edifying. He literally says if you have two people and they're ministering, one is prophesying and one is speaking in tongues, he says the one that is prophesying, the one who is conducting their ministry that the whole church be edified is greater than the one who is speaking in tongues or who is expressing their own ministry through tongues. So he, he makes it really, really clear. You need to consider the greatest ministry from those who are concerned about the greatest number being edified as opposed to somebody concerned about edifying themselves. He says, verse 6, Now, brethren, if I come unto you speaking with tongues, what shall I profit you? except I shall speak to you either by revelation or by knowledge or by prophesying or by doctrine. He says, even, even me, the Apostle Paul, if I come to you and, and I'm speaking in tongues, I'm not doing you any good. In fact, notice, Paul is explaining, it doesn't matter who I am. If I don't come with a point that everybody's going to be edified and I'm not just concerned about myself, he says, I don't profit you just because I'm an apostle. I don't profit you just because I have this great ability. I only profit you if I am concerned about the church being edified and, and I do something that is clear revelation or knowledge or prophesying or by doctrine. 
And so he, he makes that clear that there's no profit except in that which is concerned about the edifying of the church. How important was this to Paul? I want you to notice, look in, in uh, verse 19. Verse 19, he says this, he says, Yet in the church I had rather speak five words with my understanding that by my voice I might teach others also than 10,000 words in an unknown tongue. Can you believe a preacher saying that? You, you, you give any preacher a choice between five words or 10,000 words, he's not a preacher if he doesn't choose 10,000 words. And he might make the same point, but a real preacher is going to say, no, I, it doesn't matter if I can say it in five words, I'll take 10,000 words. Even if I'm not saying any more than 10,000 words, Paul said, that's not what I think. If the 10,000 words, if, if the volume and the quantity is such that people can't understand me, I, I would rather speak five words where the church is edified than 10,000 that helps me but is not helpful to the church. Now, you might think, okay, well, this is just about tongues or this is just about prophesying. Not exactly, because after he explains those two church services, he finishes that in verse 25. Then Paul says in verse 26, notice this. How is it then, brethren, when you come together, every one of you hath a psalm, hath a doctrine, hath a tongue, hath a revelation, hath an interpretation. He, he says, how is it then? Because he's following on this line of thinking and now he expands it beyond tongues because tongues is only one of the things he says. His point is, how is it then if you say that you want church service number two and, and, and you would say, oh, well, of course we want a church service like that. How is it that you come in and you want to do this your way and you want to do this your way and you want to do this your way and you're going to bring your way and you're going to bring your way and, and you are concerned about your own expression? He says, how, how, is, how is that that you say that you want church service number two and, and this is the greater potential but yet you come in and you have your own way to do things? And you come in with more of a bent of personal expression than that the church be edified. He says at the end of verse 26, let all things be done unto edifying. All things. I mean, he, he clarifies it involves a, a, a lot of ministry. In fact, it involves all ministry in that way. Now, now we're going to take a little bit of a, of a time out from chapter 14. And I want you to go back to chapter 3. Go back to chapter 3 of 1 Corinthians. And I'm not going to read out of every chapter. But I'm going to give you a quick summary of, of just about every chapter. All the way, we're not, for sake of time, we're not going all the way. But we're going to do quite a bit. I want you to realize that chapter 14 started a long time before chapter 14. So in chapter 3... Notice, uh, look, look at, at, uh, at verse 2. I have fed you with milk and not with meat, for hitherto you were not able to bear it, neither yet now are ye able. He's starting out pretty strong, and he says, For ye are yet carnal, 
For whereas there is among you envying and strife and divisions, are you not, are you not carnal and walk as men? For while one saith, I am of Paul, and another, I am of Apollos, are you not carnal? So he starts off after giving some, some great truths in chapter 1 and 2, now he starts dealing with Corinth's problem with their issue that every church has to be on guard against. But that's one of the, the great benefits of 1 Corinthians, of the letter to Corinth. And so he starts out saying, all right, Corinth, you have some carnality about you. And here's part of your carnality is that there is envying and strife and, di and divisions among you because some of you are saying, no, we're, we're, we're of this person. And others were saying, well, we're of this person. And, and he goes on later and he throws Cephas in as well of Peter. And some of them, instead of saying, we are the church at Corinth, they're saying, no, we, we follow, you know, we kind of follow this one. And, and he, would, he was our pastor. And, and another says, well, this one was our pastor. And another one, well, this was our pastor. And he just makes it clear. He says, that's why there is envying and strife and divisions among you. And, and it's because there is a carnality in your heart that you, are, that you are kind of divided up into, well, you're, you're bringing this thought and this, this person's influence and you're bringing this one's influence and this one's, you're bringing this influence. And, and he starts that in chapter three and, and he carries it through all the way to the end of the chapter. All right, so then he gets into chapter four. So follow along with me here. And he's saying, Many of the same things, he's just giving a different application. But I thought this is interesting. Look at verse 17. This is how serious Paul believes this problem is in Corinth. He says, For this cause have I sent unto you Timotheus, who is my beloved son and faithful in the Lord, who shall bring you into remembrance of my ways, which be in Christ, as I teach everywhere in every church. So he says, what I'm giving you are, are in, in a sense, it's, it's these truths, it's these mindsets that every church ought to have. And he says in verse 18, now some are puffed up as though I would not come to you, but I will come to you surely if the Lord will and will know not the speech of them which are puffed up, but the power. You know what he says? He says, now I'm going to come and this is a big enough problem that I'm going to deal with it. And when I come, I'm not going to just listen to your words. I want to see what you do. I, I want to see your power. I, I don't want to just hear, you know, you say this or you say this. I, I want to see what, what it is. Verse 20, for the kingdom of God is not in word, but in power. And he says, I, I, I want to see evidence of where you are. It doesn't matter what you say or how you explain it. Your words are not going to matter. I want to see the fruit of who you are. Verse 21 is pretty interesting. He says, so what will ye? By the way, this will help you understand your pastor, maybe a little bit more in, in preaching, but particularly preaching from a pastor. He says, what will ye? Shall I come unto you with a rod or in love and in the spirit of meekness? Now, what he's saying there is what maybe you've said before. I think he's preaching right at me. Somebody told him something about me. But Paul is saying, well, kind of. Because when I come, what I preach is going to be based on where you are. He, he, he said, you, if you were going to be this way, I'm going to preach like this. 
Or if you're going to be like this, then I'm going to preach the other way. If I can come to you with a rod or I can come in love and in the spirit of meekness. And it depends on your spirit and your attitude as to how I come across to you and, and what I preach and the challenge that I preach. So if sometimes you're thinking, man, I, I think he just decided to preach that right at me. Well, for one thing, Paul told them, he says, you might just feel like I'm preaching right at you, but the way you live determines how I preach. So there is some validity to that. So I'm just demonstrating that Paul is really strong about some of this. And then in chapter 5, he starts off talking about this, this man who has sinned. And, and all of chapter 5 is that the church needs to deal with this together. He's, he's saying not, not apart. Some of you don't want to participate. He says, listen, you're going to, you're going to have to cooperate together so that this, if this man's going to have a chance of being salvaged and, and you're going to have to choose not to fellowship, to not keep company with. And the point is not the discipline, is that chapter 5 is saying you need to do this together. He already started in chapter 3 and said, listen, there's envying, strife, and divisions because you have different people who want different things. And, and he says in chapter 4, I'm going to deal strongly with that. Now chapter 5, he's saying again, you need to work together even when there is an aspect of church discipline. So then he gets into chapter 6. And he starts explaining some additional aspects that he says, now, I, I, want to, I want you to know how you need to operate. And I want you to understand how I minister that helps me be effective. And so in chapter 6, for one of the things he talks about is that, is that you want to claim your individual rights to the point that you're willing to sue a brother. And he says, don't sue a brother. That hurts the testimony of the whole church. Don't just do what makes you feel better. You need to be mindful of, of what the church's reputation is and how it affects the church. And, and so he deals with that some in, in chapter 6. Notice this giving up of rights. Because in chapter 6, give up the rights to sue a brother because you're part of a church body. Chapter 7, he says, you might have to give up some rights in, for the sake of ministry, maybe even dealing in, in marriage or, or if, if God's called you into ministry and, and not to marriage, that, that you say, okay, that, that's fine. I, I will just dedicate myself to the ministry if God doesn't have me being married. In chapter 8, he says, be willing to give up your right to eat meat that's been offered to idols. Because it could affect a brother. In chapter 9, he says, you need to be willing to give up your right to accept the pay for your ministry work. Because of how he went from place to place to place. Later in the chapter, he says, I, I, I need to be willing to constrict myself and, and be what men need me to be. And he's not talking about expanding. He's talking about constricting. And, and so he goes chapter after chapter after chapter. And he's whittling away at the biggest problem that the church at Corinth had. And that is there was a certain amount of selfishness to them that said, I'm going to do what I want to do and I'm going to express ministry my way. And according to what he said in 1 Corinthians 14, it significantly affects even a church service. That it becomes evident in the effectiveness of a church service because that's when all of these individual members are gathered together it's interesting in chapter 12, he's talking about the, he kind of balances this out and he says now, he says, yes, it is true. You are individual members and God's going to gift you, but you are individual members that work best in the context of a body. 
that he spends chapter 12 saying that that's part of the, that's part of the benefit is yes, you are individual and I'm working in you individually and I'm going to gift you differently, but you're going to work in a body. And then turn to chapter 13, 1 Corinthians 13, so that I just want you to see the flow here. Because after he has said, now you have these gifts individually, he says, but now, now let me go back to my cautions. He says in verse 1, even as Paul, though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels and have not charity, I am become a sounding brass or a tinkling cymbal. Meaning that these tongues that he's going to talk about in chapter 14, I, I might be able to do that better than anybody. But if I don't have expressed love towards my brothers and sisters, my gifts are irrelevant. You can speak with tongues all you want, but you're going to be like sounding brass in a tinkling cymbal. Verse 2, and though I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, I mean this is somebody that would be an advanced Christian in people's eyes to have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge. He says, and though I have all faith, I look really spiritual so that I could remove mountains. If I don't have charity, Towards my brother and sister, I am nothing. It's not about the ability. He says, if, he says Corinth, if, if, if you lose sight of the fact that you are a church, you are a local body of brothers and sisters in Christ that are meant to work together, you can have all the ability you want and it's not going to have any good impact in your church service. Verse 3, and though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, and though I give my body to be burned, you can be a martyr. But if you don't have charity, it profits you nothing. And he goes on and says, the church member that has charity, here's what it looks like. And he explains so many great things. So that's why he starts off chapter 14 and says, follow after charity and desire spiritual gifts, but rather that you may prophesy because that demonstrates that you are concerned about the church and not just you. Now, I, I just want you to notice some, some practical implications about all of this. So again, notice verse 24. We're back in chapter 14. But if all prophesy, and there come in one that believeth not, or one unlearned, because of the prophesying, because it is an expression of a gift of a ministry that is concerned about everybody being edified, he is convinced of all. Now, some commentators will say, well, he's convinced of all truth. Others would say, well, he's convinced of all people. And, and most of them come down that he's convinced of all people because of the context of what the chapter is, that, that individuals ministering are concerned about the church. And I, I believe that as well, that the context there is that he is convinced of all. So I want you to notice part of the point here is that you have to be careful as a church member to not think that the primary convincer when somebody comes into this service from a human standpoint is him. You say, well, well the preaching is the is the most important. Well, it, it depends on, on how you approach your service. I, I think maybe your, your pastor probably dealt with this some before, but you know, really in the first half of a service, God's the audience. 
I mean, we're, we're singing to him. Sing unto the Lord is a, is, is a, is a very oft-repeated phrase in the Bible. So God becomes the audience of our music. Otherwise, singing to the Lord would be irrelevant. So God's the audience in the first half of the service, and then man's the audience in the second half of the service. But he says, I mean, if, if there are people that are interested in everybody being edified, then the convincing of the guest that comes in is actually he's convinced of everybody in the room. He's convinced by the person sitting beside them in the pew and the person sitting in front of them in the pew and the person greeting them at the door and, and, and the, the, the people that they are watching at the invitation time, that it's not just, the, that it's not just a, a pastor making an impression. And I understand, I, I have sat in the pew as working a, a career and, and gone through having to battle with some of these things myself and, and saying, you know, boy, it sure seems like that, that Brother Davison is the primary one um, really having to make a, a difference on the person coming in and yet realizing, no, that is part of my responsibility sitting in the pew. Everything you do as a member should be measured in part by how convincing it is to a guest. If you want church service number two. I don't know about you. I, I, maybe I... Maybe I do. I hope I do. I don't want to go to a church like that has church service number one all the time. I want to go to a church where, where something is happening, where, where guests come and, and, and God is, is doing something in their life. And, and I realize that that's not like, okay, every time there's going to be a, a guest that, that is ready. But I can guarantee that if a guest that is really open to the Holy Spirit comes in, that I can do my part. You can do your part as a church member. You can guarantee that every service you came in and you determined, I'm going to measure everything I do in this service by how convincing it is to a guest. Everything we do ought to be with that in mind. Where do you sit? How soon do you sit? I mean, are you the person that comes in and comes in, sits down, waits for somebody to bless me? How do you sing? How convincing are you? Are you, because that guest that came in, they've been to four contemporary churches and man, there was a lot of energy. It wasn't necessarily a whole lot of congregational singing, but there was a lot of energy. They come in here and bless God, we sing that good old godly music. Except for the two or three people around me don't seem very convinced. Because they're looking around and wondering what's going on and they're not, they're not convinced that there's power in the blood. Is, is that exciting? And no wonder they leave and say, those people are mad. You know, it, it, our, our services, our song services, be a lot like Elijah on Mount Carmel. You know, we're, we're the, the, the prophets were the ones that, man, everybody was convinced, the people were convinced these are the ones who, who have the real true religion. Because the people were confused. They were, they were thinking, man, these prophets have it. And so, you know, Elijah goes up and says, all right, y'all are going to have to pick. So you prophets, you do whatever you need to do. And man, they, they, they get up there and they start jumping up and down on the altar. And I'm telling you, they produced a lot of energy. And they start cutting themselves. 
and, and, and dancing up and down on the altar. And, and I'm sure a lot of the people, when they saw that, they're thinking, man, that's, that's pretty good stuff right there. This is an exciting service right here. And then what does Elijah do? Well, he goes and takes and repairs the altar, but then he pours all this water on the wood. And I'm convinced one of the reasons for that is he wanted to make it clear that if, if fire comes down and it, and it consumes wet wood, that's the most convincing. And, and you think hymns alone is what convinces people? No. It's the, it's the person that comes in and says, man, them contemporary churches, they got all the best music. Those hymns, they won't burn. But they come in and they watch the people around them singing them. And they're thinking, wow, wet wood does burn. That's convincing. As opposed, to, as opposed to somebody saying, yeah, bless God, I'm thankful we, we do the hymns. And yet the way that some churches and some church members sing the hymns in the pew, they are the ones who convince people that contemporary music is a lot better. Because there's more energy in it. I'm telling you, every church member who says they want church service number two has to decide from the very moment I pull onto this property, I'm going to be mindful that a guest is watching and I, I want to be sure that I do everything so that they can be convinced. I can do my part to be convinced instead of me just coming in and deciding I'm going to do my own ministry. I'm going to do my own speaking in tongues. I would think that if Brother Ingram gets up Sunday morning and starts preaching, and somebody stands up in here and starts speaking in tongues, I have a feeling people are going to take them out. I'm guessing security would deal with them. I don't know, maybe, maybe somebody would, maybe Brother Luigi would get up and start interpreting for them, I don't know, you know, and, and he'd say, yeah, I, I understand them, you know. That's not going to happen, you'd carry them out. But then churches tolerate people who have the exact same attitude, they just don't speak in tongues. They just come in and they're concerned about themselves and their ministry. Or somebody that comes in and, you know, they're convincing could be the kind of attitude they have towards others. And, and I wonder if a guest could hear one church member talk to another, especially maybe if one's having to say, hey, we need you to do it this way, or, or this is how we need to conduct this ministry. And, and then to hear somebody's response to that and think, you know, you may as well have just spoken tongues because the guest would listen to that and say, I don't get this. And they're not convinced. Whereas somebody that is concerned about the whole church being edified says, listen, it's not about me. Whatever I need to do to, to, to fit in for this ministry to be as effective as possible, that's what I want to do. Those are the kind of church members that are convincing for the guest that comes in. Or how willing you are to submit to the same plan that others do. To say, you know, I... Maybe I'd prefer it this way or prefer it that way. But in light of, of what Paul said was so carnal about Corinth, I don't want to be that part of this church. I, I, these people submit and it hasn't, they haven't died, you know, so maybe I could do the same thing so that I'm not the same as the tongue speaker in that case. So church member, don't leave it to him to be the primary convincer. You decide, you don't know who's watching you. Well, sure, everybody's watching him, but, but you don't know who's watching you. In fact, I guarantee a lot of them will be more convinced because in some ways you carry more weight than he does because they think he's paid. He only does what he does because he's paid to. And you're not. You sit in the pew 
and you have a chance. And then notice from verse 19 again. We read this earlier when he says, Yet in the church I would rather speak five words with my understanding that by my voice I might teach others also than 10,000 words in an unknown tongue. So not only the fact that he should not be the only one considered convincing, but somebody ought to be willing to limit their own expression than violate this truth. To say, I, I don't, I, I, would, I would rather do this much that fits in with edifying the whole church than have an opportunity to have this huge ministry that is just about me. That, that Paul said, I would rather limit, I, I will do, I'll do less than maybe I'm allowed to do if it, if it means that I can benefit the whole church as opposed to me just having to have this, this grand amount, but yet it's just an expression of me. And then notice in verse 26, a third application of this, that when he, when he lists these, how is it then, brethren, when you come together, everyone, you got the psalm, doctrine, tongue, revelation, interpretation, he, he ends that with, let all things be done unto edifying. And then look at verse 40, let all things be done decently and in order. What Paul is saying in verse 26 with the word all things be done and in verse 40 let all things, there's not a ministry that this doesn't apply to. He says it applies to everything. I mean you're, you are talking great potential for church service number two when whatever ministry a church member is involved in, they're realizing, you know, if this is the nursery, it applies if this is ushering, it applies. If this is music, it applies. If this is outreach, it applies. If this is teaching, it, it, it applies. That we're not going to have this ministry has this kingdom builder and this ministry has this kingdom builder because we may as well allow tongues if we're going to allow that. Because both are concerned about their own expression primarily instead of somebody else's. And you cannot name a ministry at Canaan Baptist Church that this doesn't apply to according to Paul. He says it applies, it applies to all of them. Notice another implication of this, and then we're going to be close to done here. Which I thought I might get some amens from some of you on, on that part. Remember this is a missions revival, just emphasize the revival part. But verse, verse 27 and 28 this is interesting. He says in verse 27, If any man speak in an unknown tongue, let it be by two, or at the most by three, and that by course, and let one interpret. So he did say, all right, since tongues were valid, let's, if somebody's going to speak in an unknown tongue, that's okay, but we still have to apply the same criteria. Let there be an interpreter. Let that be by course, meaning in order. By two, or at the most by three, and then he says, and let one interpret so that the, the guest can understand. All right, but, but it's verse 28 that I'm interested in. But if there be no interpreter, let him keep silence in the church and let him speak to himself and to God. He says, so if, 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 you're, if you're not going to do it in a way in which edification of everybody is done, he says, what's interesting, he says, let them keep silence. Now, do you realize what that says? I, I know this is not necessarily popular in any church, but it is the Word of God. He says it is valid to say to somebody, I'm sorry, if, if you're not, not going to fit what we're trying to accomplish, 
you can't do that ministry. Isn't that tough? Well, it depends on, on which church service you want. Because the reason a lot of churches can't experience church service number two is they're not going to tolerate that kind of a structure in a church. They're not that passionate about it. Because it, it, it has to be in which a, a, a pastor is able to say or a ministry leader is able to say, now this is the way that it, that it needs to be done and this is what's going to be the most edifying to, to the people and, and he says, so, so step A and B and C, but then if, if somebody decides, I, I don't want to do that. I have my own doctrine. I have my own way. Here's the way it was done at the church I came from, or here's how the pastor trained me to do it. Then uh, a person has to say that, I, you know, I'm sorry. I, I'm, I'm glad you have that ability. That, that's wonderful. But even the Apostle Paul was willing to limit his ministry if it wasn't for the benefit of the whole congregation. And, I, and I, listen, church, if your pastor has to say to somebody, I'm sorry, you, you can't do that ministry, he doesn't, he doesn't need your doubt. He needs your confidence that he's, he's trying to protect the ministry so that everybody can be edified. He needs the support of a congregation if and when that happens. This is, this is exciting revival stuff, isn't it? Interesting. I'm almost done. So, well, and, and, and then he says in verse 12, which I think is great. He says, even so ye, for as much as ye are zealous of spiritual gifts, seek that ye may excel to the edifying of the church. Be zealous about edifying. This idea of excellence is not just for businesses. It's for churches. I mean, God gives us, he gives us something eternal to be involved in. And what is at stake is the guest that comes in who has the potential that if they can be convinced by everybody in here, there is the potential for them to fall on their face and worship God and the secrets of their heart to be made manifest and, and leave this place saying God was here. And, and that is most likely if every church member says, listen, I want to, I don't, I don't want to just tolerate this idea of everybody being edified. I want to excel at the edification of the church. And if I'm involved in the nursery, I want to excel at doing my part the best I can. And if I'm involved in the ushering, I want to excel at ushering the best I can. If I'm involved, I play an instrument or I sing, I want to do everything I can to do that with the best excellence I can so that the guests coming in can be challenged and can be convinced of exactly what we are wanting to do. And it's amazing what God can do in a church when every member decides, you know, I'm not just going to be passive. I'm going to be active. I'm going to seek to excel at the edifying of the church. So he basically concludes two things in this chapter. He says, you want to have church service number two. One, you've got to have a passion for others. And second, you've got to have a passion for excellence. And it's very possible that the future effectiveness of Canaan Baptist Church is not riding on him. It's riding on you and you and you and you and you and you and you. According to Paul. And he, and he says, listen, you, you, you can have some services that will be amazing. 
And he doesn't have to preach any better than he has. Because it's in your hands. If you decide for yourself first, you decide for yourself, when I come in, I want to I do things in a way that everybody's edified. I'm not going to just be about myself. Now, I said that you need to be concerned about that about you. But let me tell you what will help a church culture. It's when every member is concerned enough about that, that they're not going to become the ear for a church member who's going to be otherwise. He, he shouldn't have to be the one to, to have to take the heat you know, for telling somebody, listen, we, we wouldn't allow a tongue speaker in here, so we're not going to allow somebody who's just bent on their personal expression. It ought to be that any church member in these pews who is concerned about church service number two happening would help another member, not by saying, you're right, he's just a tyrant. He just thinks things has to be done his way. That instead a member might would say to another member, you know, that some maybe there are better ways to do things, but for the sake of us being convincing to our guests, we just can't have, we just can't have you know you wanting to do this because if you want to do it that way, then the person beside you can come in and say they can do it that way, and a church member could just say, not only are we wanting to be biblical, but it, that doesn't that's not even logical because then everybody gets to do it their way, and no organization can exist. I remember one of our church members came to me a while back and said, Pastor, I just wanted you to know I, I talked to so-and-so in case there's some, you know, some problems from it in which there never were. So I talked to him and I was trying to explain that truth to them and, and I just couldn't get through until I said to them, it was a lady in the church that wanted to do some things her particular way and get a little bit irritated. And so I said, you know, it's like with your children, if your husband decided he wanted to raise the children one way, and you decided you wanted to raise the children another way, you're going to turn out with some pretty eclectic children, pretty weird kids. And she said, you know, that actually is happening in our home. And they said, well, that's kind of what happens at a church. If everybody can't be on the same page and say, we want everybody to be edified. So church, have a passion for others. I, I promise you that will affect, that will give you a foundation in which missions does not become near as much of a problem after that. Because missions is a concern for others in an entire different place. But if that battle can be won right here, then a missions message doesn't have to be near as powerful or convincing. It will fall on ground in which people are like, that, that's what we do here. We, we, want, we won't have any problem being concerned about others someplace else. So I said two passions, a passion for others and then a passion for excellence. A passion for excellence. It, it's, a, it's a shame that Chick-fil-A should have more passion for a chicken sandwich than God's people do for their own ministries. And so, would you be willing at invitation time to just do a little bit of inventory of what Paul said for a good part of the whole book of 1 Corinthians and, and ask yourself what the link is between how much you want church service number two and how much you are willing to say for the sake of edifying everybody else I will set my own particular expression aside so that we have a lot better chance of convincing those that come in these doors. Maybe submit every ministry you're involved in. Maybe submit the way that, that you act in handshaking time. Maybe submit the way that you sing. 
Maybe submit the way that, that you submit to a, a church leader somewhere or to somebody that's over a ministry. Would you do an inventory of every one of those and just ask the Lord, Lord, am I convincing according to what 1 Corinthians 14 says? Or, or would, I be, would I be the equivalent of a tongue speaker Amen. at Canaan Baptist Church? And let the Lord deal with your heart in any way and then give God an opportunity to do some great things yeah. at Canaan Baptist Church. Let's stand together, every head bowed. <clears throat> Father, I pray that you would have complete freedom in dealing with some challenging truths, but biblical truths that has a lot to do with effectiveness of churches. Lord, I, I pray that, that an inventory really could be done, that even the most committed church members would be willing to recognize the importance of being concerned, having a passion for others, when we come to church. Lord, that our ministry would not be just what we do and what satisfies us, but that we would be, want others to be affected and changed and, and, and that you, you would have freedom to work in others because of the effects of individual church members here. And then God, give them a passion for excellence. I pray that every one of them would want to do as well at their ministry as they expect their pastor to do at preaching because the convincing is done of all. Lord, accomplish what you want through this invitation, I pray in Christ's name. Amen.